When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. After a nine-year investigation, a man who had been leaking secrets to the Soviets was finally arrested. That man being Aldrich Ames. For anyone who is uninitiated with the man, Aldrich Ames was an American CIA official that was arrested back in the year 1994 on charges of committing espionage for the Soviet Union. The man that you can see behind me here has the unique distinction of causing the most expensive security breach in American history. One that would result in the death of many, many individuals. Now it is that after many years of investigation and subsequent records, we now realize that Ames was responsible for the destruction of over a hundred different operations for the United States. And over the course of his career would manage to betray more than 30 different operatives resulting in the deaths of many. But mind you, we're not talking about individuals that were just spying for the United States. We're also talking about for allies with MI6 and Britain and others. Single-handedly, this man was responsible for bringing effectively all Western intelligence to a complete halt over the course of the 80s and 90s. As an example of some of the things that he did, just before the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, he managed to release the information of two highly classified operations that the United States were working on. In one case, he would give detailed information about a series of tunnels that were filled with fiber optic communication lines that were connected to listening devices in Moscow's space facility. In another case, he would divulge the specifications of a device that was being used by the United States in order to count the number of warheads that were on Soviet intercontinental missiles. Something that considering the nuclear arms race that was going on at the time was of vital importance, and this was just given freely. There are a lot more things that this man did and is responsible for, but at this point we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. In order to talk about what it is that he did, we have to talk about Ames as a person and how it is that he got to this point. Because the story is honestly hilariously sad on many different factors, both for Ames himself and also for the United States who failed to capture him for many years despite obvious signs. As for why that is the case, well, buckle up and listen up because the story is going to get wild. So Aldrich Ames was born in River Falls, Wisconsin to a Carlton Cecile Ames and Rachel Ames. His father was a college lecturer at Wisconsin State College River Falls and his mother was a high school English teacher. It wasn't anything crazy or really special about his upbringing or his parents or anything for that matter, it's just a relative normal childhood except for a series of problems that he would face that would end up shaping him for perhaps the rest of his life. You see, among the couple's three children, Eldrick was the only son. And with no older brothers or other male figures to really look up to in his life, the one that he was left with was his father. And this is a guy who would seem to inspire him in multiple different capacities. Both in the sense that in 1952, his father would begin working with the CIA's Directorate of Operations in Virginia, which is then something that would lead to him working in the CIA himself. But after being posted to Southeast Asia in 1953, he would receive rather negative reviews from his superiors. You see, Carlton unfortunately had a bit of a severe drinking problem, something that was apparently so severe that it was reported regularly in his appraisals. As a result of this, because the CIA really couldn't do anything with his father, he ended up being posted back at CIA headquarters where he wouldn't really do much for the rest of his life or career, except drink. Drink was always a thing that was going to be common for him and would be common very much so for the rest of the story, which is not exactly the best start for little Aldrich. But either way, in the case of Aldrich, 
he would later attend McLean High School in McLean, Virginia. And so following his sophomore year beginning in 1957, he would actually go on to work in the CIA just like his father. Except considering that he was not even graduated from high school at this point, he had started as a GS3, one of the low-ranking individuals that would be doing simple things like, you know, just paper pushing duties, record analysis, these kinds of things. A lot of the menial tasks that still need to be done, but you know, you're not gonna have like an elite who has been training for years for field operations doing simple desk work usually. Though simultaneously, one of the things that he would end up doing at this time is marking things as classified for documents, you know, something that later on would get him into a lot of trouble when he would do the exact opposite of what his high school job was. But either way, a couple years pass, and in 1959, Amos would go on to enter college at the University of Chicago, with the idea that he has there being that he's going to study history and foreign culture and things like that, which actually is scarily similar to what it is that I did myself, which is history and international studies. But apparently because of a long-standing issue that he had where he simply seemed to love theater too much and drama, this meant that he didn't really do well in school, to the point that he was failing quite a number of classes and then ultimately would end up dropping out, never completing his sophomore year. This would result in Aldrich actually going back to the CIA, where he would begin to work as a simple laborer in 1960, and become the assistant technical director at the Chicago Theater until February of 1962. After doing this for a while, he would return back to Washington, where he would take up work with the CIA fully, this time as the kind of record analysis, paper pusher kind of job that he had done in high school, except this time as a college dropout. Really, it's not anything crazy, but you can kind of see here from the beginning that the life that he had wasn't exactly easy. It wasn't necessarily the hardest, and there were definitely decisions that he was making that were bad and were putting him in a worse position, but he definitely was starting out from pretty low on the totem pole for pretty much everything. So Aldrich goes and does this for a while, and five years managed to pass with really very little incident. He manages to complete a bachelor's degree in history at George Washington University, and for a time he really didn't plan on going into the CIA itself or pursuing anything with intelligence. But over the years he did manage to get promoted, and by this time was at the rank of GS7, while simultaneously getting pretty good performance reviews, at least at the level that he was at. And as a result of this, he would end up getting accepted into the career trainee program at the CIA. Now I say that it had gone smoothly, but there was actually a series of issues prior to this that for whatever reason did not affect him getting accepted into the program. He had had several brush-ins with police, specifically due to alcohol-related issues, much in the same way as his father was suffering from alcoholism for many years, he himself from a young age was following in those exact same footsteps. But this was something that apparently just wasn't really a problem for the CIA, and so he was accepted into the program and managed to pass things. And if we go and fast forward a couple years, in 1969, when everything seems to be going rather smoothly, he goes and marries a fellow CIA officer, a woman by the name of Nancy Sedgbert, someone who he'd actually met back when he was still in training with the CIA. All in all, life is not necessarily looking so bad for the guy here at this point. And now he would actually be able to go and begin his real career with the CIA, but not this time as a simple paper push or anything like that. Oh no, now he was actually going to be able to do some field work. The place where Amos gets assigned to is in Ankara, Turkey. And the funny thing about this is that because he is now working as a field officer there, his wife ends up getting forced to move into a different department because of the CIA having a rule where they're not actually allowed to have two married officers work for the same place. And in the case of Amos, his job there was probably going to be more valuable to the CIA for what it is that they wanted. You see, his job was to try and recruit Soviet officers to turning coat from the Soviet Union and instead join the United States to become double agents. Kind of ironic considering what it is that would end up happening to him later and what he would do, but you know, that's besides the point, I guess. He would end up succeeding in his endeavors, though this was pretty much by stupid luck in the first place, because he would end up infiltrating the communist Dev Jenk organization 
through a roommate of a student activist by the name of Denise Jemez, or Dennis Jemis. I'm actually not even sure how I would pronounce this because at this point we're getting into Turkish names and there's always going to be things that I'm going to be screwing up on. So if you want to let me know in the comment section how it is that I'm actually supposed to pronounce that, please let me know. I would greatly appreciate it. I highly doubt that it's just Denise. Either way, despite the fact that he had been successful, his reviews were not the best from this time. Maybe it was because of the alcoholism, maybe it was because of dumb luck, maybe it was because of a number of different factors. Like that he wasn't really sociable. But his performance was only marked as satisfactory, and because of this, at this point, he really did consider to just leave the CIA altogether and to do something else. Which, to be fair, if he had done so, would have actually ended up saving a lot of different lives. But we all know that that is not what happened. Otherwise, why would I be making this video right now? Either way, in 1972, Amos would go on to return to the CIA headquarters, where he would spend the next four years working in the Soviet East European Division. And there, perhaps it was because he was back to doing simple paperwork rather than planning out different things with the field operations, but he was actually seeing some better success. I mean, this in comparison to actually having to do real spy work and infiltrate organizations, he was doing simple paperwork that he had done for years already, and I mean, that was that was a lot better for him. So you would think that from this, that his review should be significantly more positive, right? Well, not exactly. Because just like in the case of his father, his drinking was only getting worse by this point, and it was specifically noted by his superiors, which meant that this notification went onto his permanent record. Like, his file outright stated that he was a heavy drinker and that this was affecting his performance, yet still nothing ever really seemed to happen to him. Honestly, you would think that when talking about the CIA and other intelligence networks, that if you have a person who has a severe vice, as in the case of alcohol or some other kind of substance, that this would be something that would create a series of alarms for them that, well, you don't want a person who potentially could be bought out or be dependent on substances. You would think this, right? But no, no, that's, that's not what would happen. He would continue to work there for many years. And so after a few years, in 1976, Amos goes on and gets posted to New York City. There, he was supposed to handle two Soviet assets, and he seems to actually do his job. Like, he does a pretty good job here, and his performance is rated as excellent, which is great. Awesome. This results in him getting a series of promotions and also bonuses. It's actually crazy because it's noted there from the histories that at the time that he was doing this, even in comparison to people who were also at a similar level in terms of job description, his pay was higher. He seemed to be at a higher level and was earning more. Nothing suspicious that was happening at this point yet. That's just what it was that was going on. He was rated pretty well. Well, I say that, but there were also a series of other issues besides just a thing with alcohol. Amos had a tendency to procrastinate with a lot of his work, which meant that when he had to submit records for like financial records or anything like that when it came to operations, he missed a lot of the deadlines, which at first may seem suspicious for some things like he's hiding it, but no, he just messed stuff up and was kind of lazy at times. You know, more of a human mistake, to be fair. Simultaneously, because of his inattention to detail, he ran into a series of problems where in one occasion, he accidentally left classified documents in a briefcase just in the subway that anyone could have taken. And the only thing that happened from this is that he received a verbal reprimand. Like, no disciplinary action was taken on him whatsoever. I, I really do not know why. Again, we go ahead and fast forward a couple years, and the year is now 1981. Amos goes and accepts a posting to Mexico City, and his wife would actually go and remain behind in New York. By this point, the relationship between him and his wife was not exactly the best, and it was really falling apart. While he was in Mexico City, he would engage in 
multiple extramarital affairs. Perhaps it was because of these distractions, the extramarital affairs, the alcohol, the any other issues that this man seemed to face that never ended up getting taken care of by his superiors, but his performance reviews at the time were honestly not that great. They were mediocre at best, and in many cases were honestly worst. Worst? Worst. They were worse. That's what I'm trying to say here. They weren't very good. Which then maybe this leads him down the path of depression, and one of those affairs that he has ends up being more than just a simple affair. It becomes a lifelong relationship. Because in October of 1982, Amos would begin an affair with a woman by the name of Maria del Rosario Casas Dupoy, who is actually a cultural attache in the Colombian embassy, and a, also a CIA informant. The funny thing is about both this affair and the multiple other affairs that he was facing is that it was CIA policy that if a agent has relations with a foreign national, this is something that needs to be reported to the CIA. Which, to be honest, just sounds absolutely hilarious, because can you imagine a person who is married and being like, ah yes, I slept with this person in this country, this person in that country, the entire time the CIA knows, hey, this is a married man who has a wife back home and simultaneously is just sleeping around wherever they go. But that was literally something that was required because they needed to know if potentially an agent was compromised because they needed to be able to look into the individuals that that agent was having relations with. After all, when it comes to spies and the idea of a honeypot, that's, that is a real thing that would occur in history. But no, he never actually goes and reports that affair and it would be in 1985 that he would actually go and marry Rosario, with whom he would actually end up having a child one by the name of Paul Ames. And so because he never reported it, because this wasn't something that was really known by the CIA, the reason that he ultimately ended up having to leave Mexico City was not because of this relationship here. No, it was because instead his performance reviews were not good because of all of the excessive drinking that he was doing. And simultaneously, there was an incident where at a diplomatic reception, he ended up getting in a verbal fight with a Cuban official. This scares the crap out of his superiors because you have to remember that the Cuban Missile Crisis was not all that too long ago. And here you have an agent that is making things significantly worse between themselves and a communist power. And with what is going on during the Cold War at this time between the Soviet Union and the United States, you really didn't want to tip things off here. So does he get dismissed? Does he get fired? Does he leave and take with him some valuable documents that he can then later sell? Nope, nope, he is still there. He is still there, does not get fired, and is only transferred. In fact, not only is he transferred, but in September of 1983, he gets transferred back to the SE Division of Washington. And this is assignment would quite literally place him in the most sensitive part of any of the CIA's operation when dealing with the issues of the Cold War and the Soviet Union. This was the area that was responsible for Soviet counterintelligence. Over the course of the years that he was going to be here, Amos would have access to pretty much every single kind of operation that the CIA was going to be engaged in against the Soviet Union. The KGB and the GRU, like the Soviet military intelligence, he was going to be involved in all of that, or at least from this have access to the information about all of that. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Now that he's back at this point, him and Nancy do formally separate. And finally, finally at this point, he manages to submit a report to a superior saying, oh yeah, hey, by the way, I'm having relations with this individual. So a couple years too late, but he does finally manage to do it. And while that does sound bad, the worst thing for him in this case is what happens because of his previous relationship with his wife. You see, as part of the divorce settlement, one of the things that Ames ended up agreeing to was that he was going to shoulder the burden 
warden of all of the debts that both he and his wife had accrued over the years. Not only was he going to do that, but simultaneously over the course of the next three and a half years, he had agreed to support his former wife financially, which was going to cost approximately $46,000 in total. And mind you, we're talking about what, like 1983, 4, 1985? It's the mid 1980s at this point, which $46,000 back in 1985 is going to be $130,000 today, almost three times the amount. The fact that it's three times the amount is something that you should probably keep in mind here for the rest of the episode. Really, at this point, I just feel bad for the guy because Amos genuinely thought that this divorce was going to bankrupt him, that it was going to ruin him and destroy his life. It is something that definitely makes a man desperate to do whatever he can, and unfortunately for him, there were also outside factors that were going to make things significantly worse for him. Rosario, the woman that he had married, actually ended up simultaneously being a very heavy spender as well. Not only was she prone to going on large shopping sprees, but simultaneously she had family back in Colombia that she was trying to keep in contact with and would spend large amounts of times on the phone with them multiple times a day. As a result of this, they were paying something along the lines of $400 a month just for the phone calls that she had back home. Again, mind you, about three times the amount, they're paying $1,000 to $1,200 a month in foreign calls. The man was getting desperate at this point. So okay, we have a very depressed man who is an alcoholic and in a mountain of debt. This, of course, I'm sure for anyone who is watching, seems like a very easy thing that definitely is not going to lead to a lot of problems whatsoever, right? Well, no. As we are probably well aware, this is the perfect recipe for a storm that is going to result in much, much suffering for many people involved. Everything is about to go to crap. Ames really needed a way out, and fortunately for him, and unfortunately for many others, there was a very easy and simple way that he could take care of things. See, one of the things that he would regularly do is that routinely he would end up assisting another CIA office that assessed Soviet embassy officials as potential intelligence assets. You know, they were looking for different ways that potentially they would be able to convert Soviet forces into their own forces, something that was a part of the big spy game. And so because he knew this, because he had contacts on both sides and was very familiar then with the Soviet embassy, well, he decided to make contact with them. In April of 1985, Amos would provide information to the Soviets that that at the time, he believed really had no value. It wasn't anything that was going to cause any problems to others. It wasn't going to result in the deaths of anything. It wasn't going to really compromise any American programs, but it would, at the very least, verify that he was legit. In the minds of the Soviets, because he was talking to them and because he was showing this to them, he wasn't some fake operative that was pretending to be with the Americans so that he could scam the Soviets for money. No, no, no. He was the genuine real thing. He asked for $50,000, which the Soviets were more than happy to pay him, and after he got this money, even Amos himself would say that he never actually planned on continuing to do anything, that at this point, once he had that money, mind you, his debt was $46,000, that he should have been scot-free. But no, that is not what happened. The reality of the situation is that once he had gone through this deal once, he got a taste for just how much money he could make in such a very quick time, and really how easy the entire thing was. And so it only got worse. Pretty soon after this, Amos would go on to identify more than 10 top-level CIA and FBI sources that were reporting on Soviet activities. The more that he revealed, the more money that the man was going to make. And when we are talking money, we're talking about money that a superpower is capable of paying. Anywhere between twenty dollars to $60,000 was paid to him every single time he would end up meeting with his Soviet handler. And you have to remember that since this is three times the amount of what money is at that time today, we're talking about the equivalent of sixty dollars to $180,000 $80,000 today that he was receiving. This was a deal that for Amos, who before had been suffering in debt and nothing more than mediocre, was simply too good to pass up, it seems. 
And so over and over and over again, Amos would meet with his handlers, each time revealing more information that was jeopardizing more agents' position. Instead of doing it for the simple purpose of just making money, there was another justification that he had going into this entire thing. He simultaneously thought that if he revealed a large part of America's foreign intelligence operations, that this would weaken and cripple their ability to be able to counteract him. The idea being, of course, that the more agents that simply disappear, the less likely that one of them would end up being assigned to look specifically for him. Rapidly over the course of only a couple years, the CIA's network of Soviet bloc agents began to disappear at an alarming rate. They were disappearing faster than the CIA could replace them, and simultaneously, this was something that was a sign that something had gone severely wrong. It's normal in the case of the spy game and operations and espionage and everything like that for things to go wrong on occasion, but not at the level they were seeing now. The CIA almost immediately realized that something was wrong, but they couldn't quite pinpoint as to what exactly this was. Initial investigations thought that perhaps the Soviets had managed to put a bug inside one of the CIA headquarters, that something was going on there, or that one of the codes that was used for communications had been broken and was now exposed to the enemy, but they couldn't really be certain as to what exactly was happening. Initially, the CIA thought that perhaps this was all the responsibility of another former CIA agent who was also a spy, this being Edward Lee Howard, but when the agency went and lost three other assets that there was simply no way that Edward had any access to their information whatsoever, this revealed that he was not the one responsible for all of this and that there either had to be another spy or that something else was going on. It's really funny, but in fact, Ames handlers at the KGB had to apologize to him, saying that they didn't want to capture as many spies as quickly as they did. Usually, you would let them kind of sit there for a longer period of time and keep tabs on them so that potentially it could reveal other information, or you can gradually capture them over time so that it doesn't reveal to the enemy that you yourself know that the enemy is there in the first place. But unfortunately, the decision had already been made at the highest level, and so there was nothing they could do about it. As a result, all of the assets within the CIA were being swept up with reckless abandon. Meanwhile, even though there was still an investigation going on, Amos would, over the years, continuously meet with his handlers at the KGB. Each time that he did, he would tell people within the CIA that what he was doing was what his job before pretty much had been, was scouting things out for potentially double agents within the Soviet Union that he would be able to convert to the American side, the exact opposite of what it is that he was actually doing. After all, you have to remember that his former job was quite literally to look for and potentially obtain double agents. Ultimately, over the course of the years, Amos would man to obtain anywhere around $4.6 million, which is the equivalent today of around 10 to 15 million. And that is a lot of money. You have to remember that the guy that we're talking about here was never exactly wealthy before. He didn't come from a wealthy family, he didn't marry into wealth, he never struck it rich or really had any amount of luck with anything, so this was a lot of new, very fabulously large amounts of wealth that he now suddenly had. And as a result of this, this was going to allow him to obtain a lifestyle that was significantly beyond what he was normally capable of. Something that you'd think would make a lot of people suspicious, but we're going to get into that in a second. Knowing that the new large amounts of money that he was obtaining was definitely suspicious, he needed a cover story. And so in 1985, when he had separated from his wife and then ultimately married his new wife, Rosario, he made up a cover story saying that, oh no, she actually came from a very fabulously wealthy family. And so all of the money and the new things that people were spying him having, well, that came as gifts from the family. They were supporting his new lifestyle. And then simultaneously, because he knew that this itself would probably be investigated, 
investigated, he ended up wiring large amounts of money to them in order to be able to give the impression that they were more wealthy than they actually were. So the man was trying to cover his tracks at least. But the CIA and other intelligence officials were only getting more suspicious. Because in mid-May of 1985, someone went and reported to the Soviets that Oleg Gordievsky, their chief of station in London, was actually the entire time secretly sending messages and reports to MI6 which, as it turns out, he actually had been doing, and was doing for the past 11 years at that point. Only a year later in 1986, because of how many assets had been lost at this point, Amos was starting to become afraid, and told his KGB handlers that he really needed some help to throw them off of his trail, because otherwise he feared that he was going to be captured. So the KGB would go and throw him a bone by creating an elaborate distraction, something that would be able to throw US investigators off of his trail. They had a Soviet case officer go and tell a CIA contact that there was, in fact, a mole, but that mole was not stationed where they thought it was. Oh no, instead it was stationed at the Warrenton Training Center, which was a secret CIA communications facility in Virginia, and this was a massive threat. As a result of that, an entire team of mole hunters had to be sent into the facility and launch an investigation that would last over a year, trying to find the spy that was creating all this trouble. At the end of all of it, after investigating over 90 different employees, there were about 10 suspects, but nothing ultimately ended up coming from this because as the investigators were looking into things, they realized that there was just simply too many problem personalities for them to figure out exactly who it was that was doing anything, and they simultaneously didn't really have any evidence to point this. So Ames, once again, is getting away with it. And because he gets away with things, in 1986, Amos then gets posted to Rome. There, his performance was, again, not exactly the best because this is an issue that he was consistently having everywhere that he seemed to go, and it was only mediocre, perhaps at best. Also at the same time, again, one of the things that people were noting was his excessive drinking problem, which just never seemed to get addressed by any of his superiors. But hey, instead of getting fired or anything happening to him there, he would continue to have a job and obtain more classified information that he would be able to release to the Soviet Soviets. And then around the year 1990, he would end up getting reassigned to the CIA's Counterintelligence Center Analysis Group, which would provide him with even more sensitive documents that he would be able to pass on, including, unfortunately, information on American double agents. Things got worse, and the CIA began to only panic more. The CIA really needs to jump in on things, and so in 1986, they assemble a proper mole investigation team. Something, anything, to try and find the sources of the leaks that were causing them all these problems. Led by a team including Paul Redmond, Gene Vetterfuel, Sandra Grimes, Diana Worthen, and Dan Payne, this team was going to look at all kinds of different aspects of the case to see what it is that they could figure out anything from any angle, anything that could potentially point them out to what was causing all of this. Whether it was that the KGB had bugged the facility, someone had somehow managed to intercept and break their codes and thus their communications, or quite simply that they had a mole in place that was feeding the information, anything was on the table and they needed to figure out who was responsible for this. And after years of investigation and looking at all of these different possibilities, the CIA was certain that at this point by 1990, no, it's not anything like a bug, there is a mole. There is a mole that is responsible for leaking this, and they know that. The problem was, they couldn't figure out who was responsible. I mean, guys, you have to understand the scope of the damage that this man is responsible for. Like, I already told you about the story with Oleg and MI6, but this guy was responsible for putting away many, many, many more people with their own interesting stories. Like, as an example, one of the guys that we have here is Major General Dmitry Polyakov, and this guy was the highest ranking member in the GRU, like the highest guy up there. And 
and he had been giving information to the CIA since the 1960s, like early 1960s. And he did this all the way up until his retirement in the year 1980. It was only after he was exposed by Ames that he would end up being executed in 1988, but the amount of information that he had been giving prior to this was ludicrous. He is easily one of, if not the most valuable asset that the West had in the Soviet Union at the time. The story behind what happened with the guy is that when he was on his second assignment to New York in 1959 to 1961, he would end up approaching counterintelligence services within America in order to be able to start giving secrets. But the weird part about him was that he wasn't doing this out of any kind of sense of greed or anything like that. No, the entire time that he was doing this, he insisted that he was in fact a Russian patriot. He didn't want to become an American. He wanted to be able to fix and stop some of the things that were occurring within Russia itself. What was motivating him was his own disgust with the communist elite of the Soviet Union, something that he saw as completely corrupt and a degradation to society. As an example of this corruption and probably what would end up becoming the driving factor behind why he would betray the Soviet Union in the first place is how the party elites would end up treating him and his son. You see, what the Soviet leadership had done was deny him the ability to take his son to see proper care in New York. His son was seriously ill and suffering from polio, and if he had been able to take his son to a facility in New York City, then there is a chance that he would have actually been able to be saved. But no, that didn't happen, and as a result of this, his son would die, and it would forever embitter him towards the Soviet Union, and specifically the party elite, who refused to let him take advantage of American, well, medical technology. And so it was that soon after his initial contact with the FBI, that Polyakov was then posted back to Moscow, where he was able to access a series of GRU documents that were able to identify double agents and also pass on information about the growing Sino-Soviet split. For anyone who was unaware of what was going on at the time, the relationship between the communist Soviet Union and the communist forces of China was not exactly the best. China, for the longest time when Stalin was back in charge, was open to working with the Soviet Union and saw the Soviet Union as the kind of older big brother from which they would base their system off of. But after the process of de-Stalinization and a series of other issues that they would end up facing, the communist brothers would end up growing apart. It was actually this information that he would obtain that would help America go and open up relations with China in 1972 under Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon. I cannot really understate just how massive the information that he provided was. And for all of this information, what exactly did he get? Well, as it turns out, it was pretty much the exact opposite of Ames. See, unlike Ames, who was giving away information for anywhere between 20 to 50 or $60,000 each time, Polyakov didn't really want any of that. As the CIA would later say talking about him, he didn't do any of this for money, he specifically did it out of a sense of patriotism and to do what he thought was right. He insisted that if the CIA was going to pay him anything, that it was only going to be $3,000 a year, and that it was not going to be anything that was cash, something that he would be able to use for some kind of lavish lifestyle. Instead, he would take $3,000 worth of gifts, oftentimes hunting gear, fishing equipment, things like this. The man really was not in it for the money. But of course, as we know the story, this is not something that would actually last, and he would end up getting captured. Because of the actions of Aldrich Ames, he would end up getting arrested in 1986. This being six years after he had already retired from the GRU, but to the Soviet Union, that didn't really matter when you were a traitor. So he was captured, detained, and then executed. The thing is, his contacts at the CIA for years just didn't know what happened to him. He just seemed to disappear. It was only later when records would be released that they realized what exactly had happened to him. Another agent 
agent that had been affected was a man by the name of Adolf Tolkachev. This was a guy who was an electrical engineer and one of the chief designers at the Fazatron Company, a company which was producing military radars for the Soviet Union back in the 70s. Now, Tolkachev was a guy who was a very valuable asset to the CIA. He was someone who was giving them information over the course of seven years that would quite literally save the United States millions of dollars. And if you think about it in terms of the time that it was then, the $70 million that they ended up saving in one incident would be the equivalent of around, again, like $250 million today. Over the course of the years that he was active, multiple times the different radar systems, missile systems, anything within the Soviet Union that potentially could be a threat to the United States, well, he was a person who would get access to it and be able to reveal it. As for the reason as to why Tolkachev would betray the Soviet Union, the reason that he gave was that he distrusted the Soviet government after it persecuted his wife's parents. As many people in the Soviet Union were probably aware of, in the previous decades under Joseph Stalin, many, many people suffered and were persecuted. So it was that over the course of January 1977 to February 1978, determined to make some kind of difference, Tolkachev would approach the FBI five different times trying to get them to accept him as an agent. Eventually, he was able to establish his bona fides with intelligence data that ended up proving to be, as I said, extremely valuable to America. Apparently, one of the sets of intelligence data that he gave ended up making the United States Air Force completely reverse direction on a $70 million electronics package for the F-15 Eagle, which that is an incredible amount. But the thing is, he wasn't just getting good intel. He was making entire new ways to be able to obtain it. Tolkachev may have been an agent that was working with the CIA, but the thing that he thought was that uh, the CIA's techniques that they were using at the time were clumsy and they just didn't really seem to work for what they needed out of Soviet systems. Not to mention the risk of perhaps giving him away, so he needed to come up with new ways to obtain the information that he wanted. As a result, over the years, Tolkachev would develop many different ways to bypass Soviet security, despite routine changes which would interfere with his different activities. He would repeatedly go and find different holes in security, he would find out ways to check out documents without actually leaving a trace that he had checked them out in the first place. And he would also simultaneously find ways to take documents home where he could then take pictures of them and give them to the CIA and FBI. The quality of his work was so good that his output was drastically ahead of practically any other kind of spy that the CIA had. Over the course of just one meeting, he managed to provide over 200 different rolls of film to American intelligence services and then in the next meeting would go on to provide 150 roles. Simultaneously, he would make his own reports when talking to the FBI and CIA that he would give detailed ledgers of what it was that he was covering in order to try and explain it to people that may not be as familiar. He was going above and beyond at every single point to help. And despite that, despite every single thing that he did, he also refused payment. Again, the exact opposite of what we saw with Ames. Like you and I both know that over the course of this video that we've been talking about, Ames was extremely suspicious with the large amounts of cash that he was obtaining. And Tolkachev knew that that was a very real possibility, especially in a place like the Soviet Union, so he didn't want to be paid. Instead, what he had was token payments that were deposited in overseas accounts as a sign of gratitude that specifically were going to be reserved for his son. But despite the insistence of the CIA at different points to try and get him out of the country, he wouldn't leave. Not only did he think that the information that he was providing was simply too valuable, but simultaneously, he didn't want to have to make his wife leave. He believed that she was going to be simply too homesick. So as he refused payment, the only thing that the CIA was able to really give him was art supplies, music, and other items that he would request 
be given to his son, access to the outside world that for most in the Soviet Union simply wasn't really possible. Hell, the man went above and beyond anything that was required of him, and oftentimes would just request meetings with different officials because he enjoyed talking to them. He would provide them information even without any kind of promise of compensation for it. It didn't really matter to him, he just, again, liked meeting with the officials and believed that he was doing a good job to give them the information. But then, again, as we all know, Aldrichames happened. Tolkachev would end up being arrested by the KGB while returning to Moscow from the countryside, and was later then put on trial and executed. With all the planning that he had done over the years, he tried to protect his family as great as he could. His wife had no idea that he was doing what he was doing. But still, to the KGB, that didn't really matter. While she would survive, his wife was ultimately imprisoned for three years for high treason. And Ames, well, he would just keep on making things worse for himself. Over the course of this time period, the recruitment of any possible new agents came to a complete halt. There was simply no way that the CIA could risk bringing in new forces that also potentially were compromised or simultaneously were going to end up being disposed of immediately after recruiting them. There was simply no way that the CIA was going to be capable of protecting the assets that it currently had. And so at this point, you're probably going to ask, okay, well, what about Amos? He had all this money, all of this stuff was going on. Certainly some of the things that he has to be doing at this point are suspicious, and people are thinking that it has to be him. How has he managed to get away with it? all this time. Well, funny that you should mention that, commenter who didn't actually ask the question, but I'm sure is going to post something down below in the comments. A year earlier, back in 1989, a series of employees had actually taken notice that all of a sudden Amos seemed to have a really good lifestyle, something that he never really had before. But not only that, but that this was a lifestyle that really any CIA officer should not be able to have, not at their salary, even with bonuses or other things. In addition to that, some of the people who were actually more familiar with Ames and his wife knew knew for a fact that his family, his wife's family, was not actually that wealthy. See, Worthen, one of the members of the investigation team, actually knew Rosario prior to her getting married to Ames, and she knew for a fact that Rosario's family was not wealthy at all. They were, in fact, poorer. And so over the course of the investigation, Worthen went on to meet with Rosario, who was doing house renovations at the time, and asked her, you know, a series of questions, things that potentially she could get some information out of, because she knew that house renovations can be very expensive, something that I'm actually learning over the course of my time here now. It sucks. But when they had a meeting in order to discuss the installation of drapes, something that at this time could cost a lot of money, and usually you would do room by room, when she asked which room they were going to concentrate upon first, instead what Rosario responded with, you know, instead of the smart thing that would have been like, oh yeah, no, we're totally going to do this one first and leave it at that, she apparently laughed and responded, one room? Haha, <laughs> no, we're doing the entire thing all at once. Because that's not suspicious at all now, is it? Like among all possible things that could be said, this that, that, that is really damn suspicious, you know? And also, as I said, Worthen had known Rosario and her family before she went and married Ames. She knew that they were not wealthy, but after getting in contact with another CIA operative and observing that, oh, hey, all of a sudden her family back in Colombia is now suddenly quite wealthy? That seems a little bit suspicious, right? Yes, you are right. No, like they do go and assign an investigator in order to be able to check out Ames and his finances and everything else, but that investigator has to then go away for two months for some like training or something like that. And then they just never go and replace the guy over the course of that investigation with someone else who can cover it while he's gone. They just let two months go by and literally that's it. Simultaneously, as all this is going down, the investigators are also being thrown off by additional stories because obviously the Soviets are going to try and protect their asset to a degree. And so they give them a full story saying that, oh, the CIA has been penetrated by a, it sounds so weird every time I use that word to say it, I really don't, I don't know what I should say there. 
that the CIA has been penetrated by an employee who is actually born in the USSR. Oh no! It's suspicious, but even when Ames is brought in in order to perform a polygraph test, he actually manages to pass this test. And although he was initially worried that he wasn't going to be able to, the KGB officials who were guiding him and helping him simply told him, hey, be confident and everything is gonna be okay. And lo and behold, it was. For anyone who is not aware, it's actually pretty easy to break a polygraph. Really, all you have to do is be confident, stay calm, and as long as you don't give any outward indications and approach things in a calm manner, it is actually very difficult for a polygraph machine to 100% tell whether or not a person is lying. And so after getting friendly with the questioners, he was able to pass it both times with really no issues whatsoever. But eventually, things were going to kind of catch up to him. The CIA would eventually finally focus on Ames, but really it took a series of different observations by different employees who were noting that Ames seemed to have a lifestyle that was way beyond what he should be capable of, and there were a series of rapid changes over the years that were very highly noticeable. Like, the man didn't just keep to the lifestyle that he already had. Oh, no, 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 he wasn't gonna do that. The man was now a multi-millionaire in the 80s, so you well know that he was going to do something big with his money. As an example, one of the things that his co-workers noted was that it seemed that he had had a series of cosmetic dentistry operations performed. Not only had he been a heavy drinker over the years, but simultaneously he was a heavy smoker. And so his teeth, which once had been very yellow, were now bright, clean, shiny, and capped. Also, one of the things that he had been known as before was more of a bargain bin shopper with a very basic appearance, but now all of a sudden, every time he was coming into work, he was wearing very nice tailored suits, things that not even other officers who were above him were able to actually afford. But it wasn't just that. Despite the fact that as a CIA officer, Ames only had a salary of around $60,000, which again, if we're talking in the 1980s, this is the equivalent of anywhere around $120,000 to $180,000 today. It is pretty good, but it's not necessarily something that would be able to afford everything that he did. Because the man went and bought a $50,000 Jaguar car in cash, that $400 a month in phone calls became more along the lines of $4,000 that his wife and him were paying every single month. They also somehow magically managed to buy a $540,000 house in Arlington, Virginia, in cash, mind you. And again, you have to remember that that is $540,000 back in the 1980s and early 90s, which means that it's more along the lines of one to one and a half million dollars today. And even after purchasing said home, they then spent an additional something like $99,000 renovating it to what they wanted. I guess for whatever reason, drapes are just that stupidly expensive, I guess. But if all of those weird and suspicious things that were paid for in cash are not suspicious enough, simultaneously, monthly, they were paying more in credit card bills than they actually made each month, at least what it is that he was supposed to have made via his salary. Like, let's see what, we're talking $60,000 a year, so $5,000 a month, and then after taxes, maybe three, three and a half, maybe even upwards of 4,000, depending on what he has. So they're paying over three and a half or four grand a month on these cards. It just doesn't make any kind of sense. Anyone from this record should have been able to see that this was weird. This should not have been going on. And yet still more time ends up going by so that in March of 1993, the CIA and FBI finally begin a very intensive investigation of Ames that include a variety of different things. They're going through his trash. They're installing bugs. They're doing everything they possibly can in order to try and get all the information on this guy because they might finally have their guy. From November of 1993, all the way up until he was actually arrested, he was kept under almost constant surveillance. 
But then in early 1994, when he was scheduled to attend a conference in Moscow and actually leave the country, then at that point, the FBI and CIA just decided they could not wait any longer in order to try and nab him, and instead opted to just arresting him. So it was that on February 21st, 1994, after years of espionage, he was finally arrested. And at his arrest, he even reportedly told officers, no, you don't understand, you have the wrong guy. I'm sure as he sat there in his shiny new teeth and fresh suit and wads of cash that were stuffed in every orifice of his body. So it was that on February 2nd, 1994, Ames and his wife were formally charged by the Department of Justice with spying for the Soviet Union and Russia. Only a few months later, on April 28th, he would actually end up pleading guilty and from this, make a deal in order to try and save his wife. Rosario would actually end up only serving a five-year prison sentence while he himself would be sentenced for life. You have to understand that over the course of those years, what this man had done was compromise virtually every single Western intelligence aspect directed towards the Soviet Union. Everything that he had, he almost managed to single-handedly bring down the entire CIA operations against the Soviet Union, and for years would in fact paralyze it, because if you remember that detail that we just mentioned, that they could not risk recruiting any additional members, because if they did so, there was a chance that they were just going to end up being revealed anyway. It's estimated that over the course of the years that he was active and giving information to the Soviets, that he managed to compromise over a hundred different operations, and simultaneously lead to the exposure of 30 different operatives. At least 10 individual sources for the CIA were compromised to the point that they were executed. Furthermore, because of his wealth of knowledge as well as access and what it was that he gave the KGB access to, this meant that the Russians were able to feed the Americans effectively whatever information they wanted. So misinformation, red herrings, any kind of false campaign that they wanted to lay a trail to, they could very effectively do that. A couple of these false reports would even end up making it all the way to the seat of the president himself. But ultimately, in the end, before he could bring down the entirety of the CIA, Ames himself was captured. To this day, he still exists in the Federal Bureau of Prisons as prisoner number 40087-083, where to this day, he is serving a life sentence for espionage. In the aftermath of everything that happened, the CIA was of course naturally criticized because of how poorly and little they acted upon any of the information, even if there were things that to you and me today seem obvious, and probably considering what we talked about, should have seemed obvious to them at the time. Time, but no, no, they didn't really do anything about it, and there was a huge uproar in Congress about it. When former CIA director James Woolsey had decided that no one in the agency was actually going to be punished or demoted or anything for that, Congress was pissed off. He is quoted as saying when he was told that heads needed to roll that, no, sorry, that is not my way. And the pressure on him was then so great that he ultimately, in the end, was forced to resign. The entire thing was just a massive embarrassment and a total intelligence failure for the United States. And really, that, in the end, is the the end of the story of Aldrich Ames, the guy who almost brought down the CIA. Now, everyone, in the end, I want to thank you very much for watching. This has been Stakui with the History of Everything podcast YouTube channel. I'm going to ask that you like, comment, subscribe. Considering the amount of support that the previous video received, I am so incredibly grateful. Thank you all very much, because the love and support you all are showing towards my longer style videos is really more than I could ever ask for. I'm going to be trying to make longer form content, because this is something that seems to be a little bit better received by people, and I figured that from that, I will be able to tell the full stories of a lot of things in way more detail than I ever was with shorter videos. So guys, I'm telling you this right now. If there are any other styles of videos that you all want to see, if you want to see long-form content on particular subjects, then please let me know down in the comment section below. I'm always looking for more things to talk about, and this is something that I really do enjoy doing. So my friends, thank you very much for watching. 
like, comment, and subscribe. And I will see you all next time. Goodbye, everyone. And I hope you have a good rest of your day. Oh, also side note, I forgot to say, hey, if you want to support my channel, you can do so by buying my coffee. It's freaking delicious, I promise you. And if you get the bundle, which is linked in the description, make sure to say in the notes that uh, you came from Stakui. We have a little competition going on here right now, and I'm going to be giving away some free coffee after it. Bye, everyone. Thank you very much for watching. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.